You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Welcome to GCC. Uh, my name is Brad. Like Rick said, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be preaching this morning. Uh, I will echo Rick's shout out to the dads, the single dads this weekend who made it. Thanks for being here. You're killing it, doing a good job. Uh, a few things just quickly about our church. Rick has, has shared some already, but I think it's important maybe if you're new to Christianity or new to at least our church uh, to understand a little bit of why we do what we do. Here at GCC, we believe that God is not deaf and that God is not mute. In other words, we believe that God hears us when we speak to him and we believe that he has spoken to us. And in that conversation and communication, we can have a relationship with him. And so uh, on Sunday mornings, we believe because we believe God hears us, we speak to him through prayer and worship. And we believe that God primarily has spoken to us through his word, the Bible, and so we open that every single week. And so uh, at GCC, every week we're going to sing songs of worship and praise to our God. We're going to pray to him, uh, and then we're going to hear from him as we open up God's word. And as we just saw in the video, the sermon bumper there, we're studying the book of Exodus right now as a church. Uh, we just started a few weeks ago, and so we're in, in the beginning of the story of Exodus, the second book in our Bible about the Israelites' uh, rescue from slavery in Egypt. And so if you will, turn to Exodus chapter 4 in your Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, we have some Bibles on the Connect table back there. You're welcome to grab one of those and take it home if you would like. While you're turning to Exodus chapter 4, I'm going to pray to our God who hears us, and then we'll jump into our text today. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, your love for us, and thank you for your grace. As we uh, just heard uh, in that video uh, Exodus is a story of grace upon grace. It's a, it's a story of you continuing to give to people who do not deserve uh, your gifts. And so as we look at the text today, I pray that we would be reminded of your grace. God, we do not 
because of our sin, we do not deserve to uh, be your children, to be standing here before you offering praises to you, or even to approach you in prayer. But you have saved us from our sin through Jesus, and because of Christ's perfection and Christ's righteousness, we can approach you boldly. We can hear from you continually, and so we thank you for that and that evidence of grace. I pray this morning that you would speak through me, that you would use this time to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, uh, and that you would empower us with your spirit to live out the things that we talk about this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we all know that the last few years, and maybe it's gone be- before a few years, but for the last several years, uh, California and Oregon have had horrible wild- wildfires. A combination of drought and some other environmental factors have made fires in uh, the West uh, really bad. And in California, especially because of a drought, they've been particularly bad the last few years. And in 2018, in Butte County in kind of central California, uh, was one of the largest, uh, deadliest, and most destructive fires that has ever happened in California, and it was the Camp Fire. It burned over 150,000 acres. Uh, It destroyed over 18,000 buildings, structures, uh, and 85 people lost their life in this fire. And after the fire was over and there was some kind of research being done and, and some investigations being done, we've found that there was a warning system that was supposed to go out to people who lived in that area. They were supposed to receive like a warning text message about the status and location of the fire, and the warning system simply failed. Many people who were in the line of the path of the wildfire did not know about it until it was too late and they were trapped, and then many lost their lives. And so a warning that was supposed to save lives failed, and lives were lost because of it. A story kind of on the other side, in 2004, uh, there was a massive tsunami in the Indian Ocean. Some of you maybe remember this. It killed over 227,000 people. There's one family and, and one girl who's 10 years old. Her name's Tilly Smith. Uh, And her and her family were on vacation in Thailand, and they were staying at a hotel and a resort that had like a beach out in front of it. And they were, she was walking along the beach with her family before the tsunami struck. And a few weeks earlier in her science class in school, she had learned about tsunamis and she had learned about the early signs that a tsunami might happen. And as she was walking along the beach with her family, she noticed some froth in the waves and she noticed some things that the the ocean was doing. Uh, And she suspected that there was going to be a tsunami. And so she warned her parents who told the guards at the hotel who cleared the beach just in time uh, before the tsunami hit. And it's estimated that around 100 people's lives were saved that day as they made it to the top of the roof because of this 10-year-old girl's warning about a tsunami that was coming. Uh, We could tell all kinds of stories like this. The point is that warnings save lives. And a failed warning, uh, a warning that doesn't arrive, could be costly. Lives could be lost because of it. Uh, We've been, like I said, studying the book of Moses, and we're kind of right now in a section where Moses is being commissioned by God to go and bring a message to the people of Israel that God has shown up to deliver them. Part of this message, though, includes a warning to Pharaoh and to Egypt about God's judgment on his oppression and his sin uh, and and, and the evil that he is, is enacting on God's people. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Rick covered this last week, uh, gives him his name, tells him that he's going to send him back to his people, and, and gives him this warning to go tell the people. And what I want us to see today, or the connection I want us to make today, is that we too, as Christians, living thousands of years later after Moses, we're given a message that includes a warning as well where Moses was given a message to go back into the dark uh, place of Egypt to tell people about God's hope of deliverance and his judgment on sin, we are to take the message of the gospel 
into the world to tell people about God's judgment on sin, but the hope that we have in Christ. You see, the gospel is good news. It's good news that God has reconciled all things to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We believe that God created the world and everything in it, and he created it all to be good and to relate to him in a good way. But because of our sin and our rebellion, we've separated ourselves from this good God. God could have stepped back and let us continue in our sinful ways, but rather he stepped in in the person of Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose victoriously from the grave so that all who would come to him in belief and in faith could have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. That's the message that those of you in this room, some of you have believed and that you live out, and that's the message and the warning that we are to take to the world. Uh, In the church world, we call this evangelism, right? Evangelism is the sharing of the gospel when we tell people the good news about salvation in Jesus Christ. The term that we like to use as a church is mission. It's one of our values. Uh, We we talk about it often. Uh, we We want to be a church that lives on mission. Oftentimes when you hear the word mission in church, you probably think of short-term mission trips or maybe long-term missionaries, which definitely falls in this category. But we want to bring it home as well and say that each and every single one of us as individual Christians are on mission in our sphere of influence wherever we live. So whether that be your work, your gym, uh, your school, your class, your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, where your kids go to school, whatever it might be, you have a sphere of influence that you are to live on mission, which means you share the good news of Jesus with those people. We don't believe that mission is just for overseas missionaries or just for people who are especially gifted evangelists. We believe that all of us are called to tell people the message of the gospel, to give the warning of God's judgment on sin, Because at the end of the day, these warnings, this warning of the gospel, saves lives. And not just lives here in the temporary physical sense, but eternal lives. Because every single person, everyone in this room, all of your friends, family, neighbors, classmates, and coworkers will exist in 100 million years. The question is not whether or not we will all exist, but where. Either with God in eternity, with him, or apart from him, and cut off from the source of life. And the only way that we can be with God for eternity is by heeding the warning of the gospel, responding to it in faith and believing in Jesus. Moses is given a message with a warning to take to the Israelites and Pharaoh. We're given a message with a warning to take to the world. But what we're going to see is Moses has excuses. He has a list of reasons why he's not the guy for the job. And I think that his excuses are very similar to the excuses we often make as to why we're not the man or the woman for the job of living on mission in our world. Moses in total has five objections to God commissioning him to go back to Egypt to take this message and this warning. Uh, Rick covered two of them last week. The first one is, who am I? To which God responds, I will be with you doesn't matter who Moses is. The, the point is that God will be with him. The second one is, okay, if you're going to be with me, then who are you? And this is when God gives his divine name, Yahweh, I am who I am. Rick covered that last week. The next three objections are in our text today, and those are what we're going to cover this morning. And as we look at each of these excuses that Moses makes, we're going to see how God responds to them. And then through this, see what's at the root of our excuses as to why we don't live on mission. Uh, and then how, to, how, how can we overcome and get past those excuses based on how God responds? So let's look at Exodus chapter 4. If you're there with me in your Bibles, let's look at Moses' first excuse. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says this, Then Moses answered, But behold, 
They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Excuse number one is, well, God, but when I go, they're not going to believe me. What's the point of going if at the end of the day, they're not going to believe me? And maybe you've said something like this. Oh, that person, they're, they're a long ways from Jesus. They would never believe in him. Or, or they, they, they're not going to, they're not going to like what I have to say. They're going to be offended. They're never going to believe what I have to say. Common excuse for why we don't share the gospel. And in response, God gives Moses three signs. Uh, Ian read a chunk of this earlier. We'll read verse two and following. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Moses is given three signs, and these signs each show in a unique way God's authority over creation. It shows his authority over evil as Moses uh, becomes an image of the one who crushes the snake from Genesis 3.15, if you remember that. It shows God's authority over human flesh, over sickness and health, over, over disease, and then God's authority over creation, over, over the Nile River, which he turns to blood. These also foreshadow the plagues that are coming, the plagues that are going to come and befall Egypt uh, in God's act of judgment on them. It also shows his authority over Egypt's false gods. Egypt has an array of gods uh, that they worship and they believe in, and these signs start to pick apart and show that God is the one who has authority over these false gods. And the purpose of these signs is to inspire or to bring about belief in the people. In verse 5, it says that you do these signs so that they would believe. The signs are meant to bring about belief. See, the burden is not on Moses to make the people believe. He can't change their hearts. He can't inspire or motivate true belief in them. His job is to perform signs that show God's power and God's authority, and those cause people to believe. I think the same is true for us. We don't bear the burden of making people believe in Jesus. It's not our responsibility to change people's hearts. In fact, we have no power to do that. Rather, we point to a sign. And our signs are not snake handling or <laughs> magic tricks or turning water into blood. The sign that we point to is God's ultimate victory over life and death, his over victory over sickness and sin and evil, and that's Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection are the miraculous sign that we point to as Christians, and it is ultimately that that will make people believe. It's not our, 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 our signs and wonders. It's not our ability, our performance, nothing that we can do to create belief in people. It's only what Jesus has already done for us. Romans 10, uh, verses 14 and 15 say this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The progression here is they will believe if they hear, and they will hear if someone speaks. Belief comes from hearing the gospel, hearing what Jesus has done, not from watching miraculous signs and wonders. Now, can God do miracles to bring people to believe in him? Absolutely. But the primary mode of people coming to belief in Jesus is through the proclamation and preaching of the gospel through the church, through his saints. And so that is our, that's, that's what we do. We don't have to worry about making someone believe. All we have to do is point to Jesus, the sign of his resurrection, his death on our behalf, and that's what inspires belief in people. Moses' second excuse, now he says, verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. We don't know exactly what uh, Moses had going on. Maybe he had some kind of speech impediment. Maybe he was rusty on his Hebrew, but he says, I I can't speak well. I couldn't speak well. You've appeared to me in a burning bush, still can't speak well. And so I'm not the guy to do this because I'm not going to be able to communicate the message in a way that people are going to be able to receive. God responds in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall shall speak. So God reminds Moses who created his mouth, who will give him the words that he is supposed to say, who will be with his mouth and help his speech. Jesus instructs the disciples in a similar way in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. He says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It's a common excuse that we have for not living on mission and sharing the gospel is that we don't know how to say it. Our communication skills aren't good enough. We don't speak well. We don't know the Bible well enough. And so the the breakdown will be in my ability to communicate this message, communicate the gospel. And in response to that, God says, Who created your mouth? Who created your tongue? Who created speech? I will be with you. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say when you need to say them. So, so far, Moses has said, what if they don't believe me, but God is the one who brings about belief? Well, what if I can't communicate it clearly? God will give you the words to say. And so let's look at the third excuse. Verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I love that Moses just gives up. (laughs) He doesn't have a good, there's like no more like, well, what about what? He's just like, just send someone else. I'm not the guy. Please, anyone but me. There has to be someone more qualified. Just send someone else. Verse 14, how does God respond? Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So please send someone else. God says, okay, but you still have to go. He's going to go with his brother, Aaron, who's going to speak on behalf of him. I think there's a, an important point here as well that is often missed when we think about living on mission, and it's that God gives us community to do mission with. God does not send us into the world as lone rangers to go proclaim the gospel by ourselves. He sends us with a community, with a team, with a church, with people. Uh, I, I mentioned our values earlier. GCC's values are on the back there. 
gospel centrality, uh, authenticity, community, mission, and then joy. We need to make a banner, but joy is a value as well. These aren't just arbitrary words that sound very Christian-y and good that we put on fancy banners to be trendy and cool and have something to fill a page on our website. Uh, these actually shape how we want to do life together as a church. When someone looks at GCC, we hope that these values are evident in our Sunday services, in our small groups, in how we engage with the community, in our lives as individuals. So, so these, these, these values come together to form kind of this statement about the kind of community that we want to be. We want to be a community of gospel-centered saints living joyful, joyful transparent lives together on mission. And that last piece, don't miss that. We're going to live lives together on mission. We're going to do this together as a church on mission. This is why our gospel community groups have a missional week. So if you're involved in a gospel community group, those are our, our weekly small groups that we have as a church. That's where life as a community at GCC happens. If you want to get involved and plugged into this community, join a gospel community group. Our gospel community group schedule is one week we have sermon discussion, then we do table time where we spend time just enjoying a meal and hanging out, then we do sermon discussion, and then we have a missional week. And missional week is where we together as a community group go out into the community to build relationships with the people in our lives. We value that as a church, we value living on mission together, and so we want to weave that into the fabric of what we do. So you're not alone. The, 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 the mission that we've been given from God is not a mission that we receive as an individual that we have to go live out on our own. It's one that we get to live out together in community. And so, yeah, you might not speak well, but maybe the person next to you does. And yeah, you might not have the best defense or argument for uh, why evil exists in God's world, but maybe the person next to you does. Utilize the gifts and skills and personalities and backgrounds that God has given the people in our community around us as we live on mission together. Evangelism is not a solo project. It's a community project. It's a team mission. It's something we do together. So God's mission, we'll recap here, is to make his glory known throughout all the earth through the proclamation of the gospel by the saints. And we each, each and every one of us, all of us have a part to play in that mission, but we often fail to do it because of the excuses we make that are a lot like the ones Moses had. And at the end of the day, there is one common theme, one common thread that ties all of these excuses together. And it's that we have a small view of God and a big view of ourselves. Each of Moses' excuses are about who he is and what he can or can't do. And each of God's responses is about who he is and what he can do. So here's a little bit about me. Uh, I grew up in the church from a very young age, as far as, I, as long as I can remember, I've been going to Sunday school and church and like flanograph Bible stories and uh, VBS and all that kind of stuff. So I've been familiar with the Bible from a young age. I went to school at the University of Oregon where I studied religious studies. And so for my bachelor's degree, I learned from secular professors about uh, all of the kinds of religions in the world you can think of. Uh, while I was going to school, I interned for a college ministry where I got to engage in gospel conversations with non-believing college students. Eventually, I became a college pastor, and so I got to, as a pastor, be on a college campus here at the U of O and engage with students uh, on a secular campus about who Jesus is. I have my, uh, this is so uncomfortable. I'll get to why, this sounds so weird. I'm I hate doing this right now. I'll, I'll explain why I'm doing it in a second. I just feel weird. Uh, I got my Master of Divinity at seminary, so I spent three and a half years studying, studying the Bible and theology at a master's level. I even won, 
what's it called? The Arthur B. Whiting Award in Biblical Literature, which I still to this day don't know what I won or why I won it. I think it was a mistake, <laughs> but it showed up in the mail. So I think there was a check with it. But, um, uh, and now my full-time job is studying the Bible and learning how and trying to apply that to how the church operates. I don't say any of that to boast. I'm crawling in my skin. I say all of that because I have what you would probably consider all of the credentials to be a good evangelist and to live on mission for God. And yet I make the same exact excuse, excuses that Moses does. I've studied the Bible at a university or at, at a master's degree, a graduate level. I do that for a living. And yet I still make the same excuses that Moses does. I think that someone else should go. I don't think that they will believe me because of something that I do or don't do. I don't think that I will be able to explain things clearly or communicate the gospel well. And there's definitely, probably, I know people that are way more qualified than me to do what, what God's calling me to do. So my problem, our problem, I believe our problem as humanity is that we have a very small view of God and a very big view of ourselves. And I think that a very big view of ourselves doesn't always mean we think we're awesome. I think oftentimes it can mean we don't think we're awesome. C.S. Lewis has kind of a famous quote. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So, so humility is not thinking that you're scum. It's just thinking of yourself less. The opposite would then follow. Pride is not thinking more of yourself, not necessarily thinking you're awesome. It's just thinking about yourself a lot. We are naturally self-absorbed, self-obsessed people who think that we are going to do everything either right or wrong, and that rules and, and runs our life. But what God is calling us to do, what, what the gospel starts to transform us to do is to take our eyes off of ourself and start looking to him. Our view of God needs to increase while our view of ourselves needs to decrease. Because you can think that you're the worst evangelist in the world, and that's still prideful because you're thinking about yourself and what you can do and not who God is and what he can do. We don't look inward to find strength we need to live on mission. We look upward. And when we do, we find a God that not only promises to be with us, but one who has gone before us. So look now uh, down. We're going to skip a few verses, verses 24 through 26 of Exodus 4. Uh, full disclosure, some of the strangest verses in the Bible uh, and some of the most difficult to interpret and translate and it's a little bit like, what's, what's going on here? So I'm going to read it. So remember, God has just told Moses, you're my guy. Go deliver my people. And so Moses is going to deliver God's people. And on the way, this is what it says. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Let's pray. <laughs> um, uh, there's so much we don't know about this text. I was just going to say this. Uh, one thing, side note, we don't come to the Bible to try to master it. We come to the Bible to be mastered by it. And so I think we need a certain level of humility when we read texts like this to be able to say, I really don't know. Uh, we don't know who God's trying to kill here. It's ambiguous in the text. It just says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So is it Moses or is it his son? Uh, we don't know why Moses' son isn't circumcised. That's part of the, the covenant of God's people. We don't know how Zipporah knew what to do. Uh, we don't know how God was going to kill whoever it is he was going to kill. We don't know what a bridegroom of blood means. Um, there's a lot we don't know about this text. I'm just going to say that. But what we do know 
is that in this short little story, it's nighttime. God has shown up to judge unfaithfulness, and the shedding of blood is the only thing that prevents him from doing just that. This is foreshadowing the Passover, which is going to come later in the book of Exodus, which will occur at night as God is going to judge and kill firstborn sons because of sin. And it's only the shedding of the blood of a lamb painted on a doorpost that will cause God's judgment to pass over. So what we see here is Moses going through an exodus of his own before he ever leads the people through their exodus. And we see that in a lot of ways in the first few chapters of Exodus. Moses is thrown into the water that is killing, killing babies, and he is rescued through. He goes out into the wilderness and meets God on a mountain in a burning bush where he receives instruction from him. And then here he is saved. He is spared because of the shedding of blood. Um, and it all has to do with firstborn sons and, and all that kind of stuff. So Moses is going through an exodus of his own before he ever leads the people through their exodus. And in the same way, Jesus has gone before us. See, Jesus is the greater Moses, the more perfect deliverer, the one who is never unfaithful to God's covenant, and he has gone before us just like Moses went before the Israelites. Jesus has lived the perfect life in our place. He has died the death, sacrificial death that we deserve for our sin, and then he has risen from the grave into new life, which we will follow him one day when we die. All of that has been secured for us, those of us who are in Christ, because Jesus has gone through it already. See, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. Jesus was the perfect evangelist. He proclaimed the gospel perfectly. He spoke clearly and eloquently. He performed miraculous signs and wonders. He confidently told people of the kingdom of God, and he did it all perfectly. He never made excuses. He never feared man. He never lacked trust in God, and he never wished that God had sent someone else in his place. And that perfection of Jesus going before us on mission in this world has been applied to you and me who are in Christ. And so now we can live on mission very imperfectly with a whole lot of fear and trepidation and awkwardness because Jesus' perfection is applied to us. We can live on mission boldly and in freedom, knowing that we're going to mess up, knowing that it's not going to go well, knowing even that we're going to be rejected, and we can do so confidently because Jesus has done it first. I don't know if you've ever considered this. Jesus was the perfect evangelist, okay? There's never been a better preacher, a better apologist. There's never been a better professor, teacher. No one's ever known the Bible more. No one's ever known the mind of God more. And at the end of his life, his mom and best friend believed him, and even they were unsure. Most people, in fact, almost everyone in Jesus's life rejected him and what he was preaching at the end of his life. And so, yes, you're going to be rejected. You're going to offend people. People might think that you are stupid for what you believe, but you're in good company. You're in the company of the one who has gone before us, the one who is with us now, and the one who ultimately will be drawing people to himself and making people believe. Like I said in the beginning, warnings save lives. Moses was given a message and a warning that meant the salvation of a people, and we're given a message and a warning that brings the salvation of the world. And we can look at ourselves and look inward and come up with a list of excuses for why we shouldn't live on mission, why we shouldn't share the gospel, why we shouldn't do the things that God is calling us to, or we can look to God, the one who has gone before us, the one who is with us, and the one who ultimately draws people to himself. So let's pray and ask the Spirit to empower us to look to Christ and go boldly into our community on mission together as a church. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not see any kind of 
past mistakes that we've committed when it comes to uh, living on mission. God, thank you for not just saving us and, and giving us a new identity. Uh, you could have stopped there, but God, you've called us into something big and beautiful and powerful. You've called us into uh, your mission to make your glory known uh, around the whole world. And that starts here in our community, that starts in our families, starts with our friends and in close proximity to us. So Spirit, would you empower us to look to you, to lift our eyes to you, to find confidence and boldness uh, to do the things that you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.